You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Second half, or, or last third, probably, of uh, the Genesis chapter 17. And so it starts with this great uh, long speech, this divine speech to uh, Abraham, or Abram, who has his name changed to Abraham. And we've looked at the first three parts of the, the speech, um, the week before Easter. And this is the, the end of the speech, and then Abraham's response. And so let me read uh, these words here now, the word of God. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation." But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Or may God bless the the reading and the preaching of his word to us. Well, we've been considering this great covenant promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants to be God to him and his descendants to give him the land. And um, when Abraham was 99 years old, God made this promise. And we saw in those first speeches how God uh, reiterates that promise, expanded his promise to be God to him and his offspring and adds the sign of circumcision. Well, this evening we come to the really the big surprise in the passage, or at least the big surprise 
for Abraham as we find that uh, it is through Sarah, his wife, who is 90, that the promise is going to come about. This is the big joke, and Abram, um, Abraham falls down on his face and laughs. And so we come to these uh, last two divine speeches, and then Abraham's response. And verse 15 really introduces this big surprise or big reveal that the promised son will be born to Sarai. And that just as Abram had had his name changed, so too Sarai is to be called Sarah. Sarah, like Sarai, means princess. Um, but we find here that God's covenant promises involve uh, not just Abraham, but involve his wife, who has been uh, along uh, at his side for the last uh, 25 years, sort of waiting with him and hoping with him patiently and having a not a very easy time of it uh, um, all those years. So the Lord says, verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. <clears throat> So this is the first time that we explicitly learn that a son is to come through Sarah. God has promised an offspring from Abram, but how is it to come about? So first of all, in the narrative, we just, we assume, we were told Sarah is barren, and we assume it's going to come about through Lot. And then Lot is, is divided from Abram, and, and Lot goes off. And then a bit later on, Abram thinks, well, the one is to inherit his household is Eliezer of Damascus, one born in his um, household. And so we think, Abram thinks for a time it's going to be him. And then later on, they're assuming that the, the heir is going to be um, Ishmael, that they come up with this plan. And for the last 13 years, they've thought Ishmael is going to be the promised heir. But here, for the first time, the Lord drops the bombshell. The son will be through his elderly wife, who is well past the age of having children. And so God's promise will come about not through uh, Abraham and Sarah's planning, not through uh, their wisdom or their plots or their machinations. It comes through God's plan, and it comes through God's design, and it comes through God's sovereign choice. God is the author of the covenant, and he will bring it about in his way and in his timing. And so uh, he promises to bless Sarah. I will bless her. This recalls the promise of blessing in Genesis 1 and the promise of blessing in Genesis 12, that promise of increase and multiplication. God is the one who can bring life from the dead, who can bring fruitfulness out of barrenness. And he's making that absolutely abundantly clear right here as he establishes his covenant promises, that he is the author of those covenant promises, and they're going to come about through his power, through his choice, through his wisdom, and not through the, the efforts of man and through our wisdom. And so he expands this great promise to, uh, to Sarah. So this, the, the story of God's people is not just a, a story of those great patriarchs and the sort of the, the women are left out there somehow on the side and are slightly irrelevant to it. It's not that, is it? The story uh, it involves uh, Abraham and his wife 
Sarah. It is about their marriage. God is at work in these patriarchal marriages to bring about his purpose. So, and from her shall come, she shall become, Sarah shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. And then it's lovely, isn't it? In verses 17 and 18, we read of Abraham's response. How does the great man of faith respond to this promise? Verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Well, it's not the first time in the chapter that Abraham has fallen on his face. He, he fell on his face um, in worship uh, at the beginning in response to God's promise. Um, and you might think, you know, he's, he's 99 years old, uh, possibly not, not that, why, I mean, it might take him a while, while to get up again. He's 99, he falls down, he's getting he's down, he's getting up. So, but that first time, he seemed to be falling down in worship and adoration, honouring the Lord. Here, he does the same, but as he's on his belly, he, he laughs. Now, what are we to make of this? It does not seem to be um, outright unbelief here. Um, later on, Sarah laughs in, in, in the next chapter. She's told that she's going to have a son, and she laughs. And then she says, well, I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, yes, you did. You did laugh. And there she's rebuked for it. So her laughter in that case seems to come out of unbelief. Um, Abraham, his laughter may be mixed with, with some unbelief. It seems to be simple incredulity or joy that actually here is his response to what's going to happen. Um, he believes that the Lord can do it, but really, it's just, um, he's in incredulous, really, that this is how God has chosen to do it. And he says to himself, so he's saying in his own heart, shall, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It's um, incredible. It's ridiculous. Um, and Abraham said to God, Here's his prayer. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And here is a heartfelt prayer. We see his love for Ishmael for 13 years. He'd been the, the object of their, their love and their hopes for the future. Genesis 1. He shall father 12 princes and I'll make him into a great nation. And actually, if you track forwards, Genesis 25, we're given the names of these 12 princes and told that where they would dwell between Shur, that is towards Egypt, and a place called Havilah, and that's, that is named in, in Genesis 2, in the beginning, around Eden, but this Havilah is of unknown location. Um, but the Ishmaelites, these 12 princes, later on, uh, they seems they dwell in the Arabian Peninsula, um, and these tribal leaders uh, in later um, Babylonian and Assyrian uh, writings it refers to these sometimes as Ishmaelites, sometimes as Arabs. So these are the Ishmaelites who are connected with um, Arabia. And then much later on, uh, you may know that you get um, in Islamic tradition, you have um, all sorts of stories about Abraham and um, his son Ishmael and stories that Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael actually went off to um, 
went off to Mecca and founded Mecca. Um, and that comes from much later. This is sort of 6th century, right, at the sort of time of Muhammad and, and so on. These, these stories start to be uh, developed. So, and then there's this, even in Islam, as my understanding, there's a debate as to whether Ishmael or Isaac was the son who was uh, sacrificed in Genesis 22. So if you speak to friends who are from an Islamic background, they will frequently say, oh, well, actually, no, it was Ishmael who was the firstborn son who was, um, who was sacrificed. And so this, this Ishmael is an important character within uh, Islamic tradition, but those stories much uh, later on. But even within Genesis, we see the importance of uh, Ishmael, and we see those 12 princes, those who would come to be in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. And it's just one of those sort of little details. Genesis introduces us to this whole cast of characters. So, so Ishmael's not going to be forgotten, but, verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. The promised son will be Isaac, and it's through Isaac that God's covenant people and covenant promises will go forwards. Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So finally, they're not just given a promise. They're given a promise with a date, with a, with a deadline, as it were. They've been waiting all those years. And finally, it's coming to fruition. They've got, a, they've got an absolute date of when this is going to happen. So this is the big surprise for Abraham and Sarah. They, they'd had their plan uh, centered around Ishmael. God's plan was different. It speaks of God's sovereign choice and his power. His plan involves a great demonstration of his power. And that final paragraph is, is Abraham's response and highlights the fact of, of Abraham's obedient response to God's word. I won't read through all of that again, but notice for the end of verse 23, we're told it was that very day that Abraham did what he was commanded, and that's repeated in verse 26. That very day, Abraham went and did what he was commanded. And we end up, is noted again, verse 24, that Abraham was 99 years old. So the chapter begins and ends with a reference to Abraham's age, and we're given the age of Ishmael there, who was also circumcised. So that final paragraph is Abraham's obedient response to God's command. Uh, and it's in the book of Genesis. Uh, there's echoes here. It's a bit like um, Noah, who was commanded and obeyed. And then later on in the Pentateuch, you have uh, Moses, who was commanded and then obeyed and did all that was said. So here is Abraham, the faithful, um, faithful man of God uh, uh, at this point at any rate. So there we are. We have uh, God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17. And there's just a number of lessons, really, for us to, to draw together from this chapter as a whole as we've been studying it. Um, I think in a general way, we've seen how God is uh, so faithful to his covenant promises. So we see, and we've seen, that um, these covenant promises in, in the book of Genesis, um, they are fulfilling his original purposes for creation. God is being faithful to those original promises. This is not a completely new plan. And so we can trace God's uh, faithfulness um, back through Genesis. 
and then we can track it forward. So the rest of, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see the outworking of God's faithfulness. Indeed, the rest of the scriptures is the outworking of God's faithful plan. And we saw that this morning. You look to the book of Luke, it's all about the fulfillment of this plan. So the New Testament is not, uh, it's not God's plan B. You know, it all went wrong in the Old Testament and here is his plan B. It is this continuity of God's faithfulness to his original covenant purposes as he works them out. And we've also seen how God's covenant promises come to fulfillment, but they come to, to that over time, how God's promises just take time. You have these repeated markers to, of their age, and Abraham and Sarah have to learn to trust God over time. I mean, just think about what they went through, just the anguished nights that they went through um, as a, as a, as a, as a as a married couple, as they've come to this land, and the land is barren, and Sarai is barren, and, and they're trusting God's promises, but there's such a gap between God's promise and the fulfillment, or even the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises. There are years, there are decades that they have to wait. Uh, so we see here uh, the long wait that they had to go through. And they're held up as examples to us in the scriptures of perseverance, of endurance. Paul speaks in Romans about the scriptures which are there to, to give us endurance and hope. And so the people of God, when they were going through hard times, times when it looked like the promises of God had failed, they were instructed to look back to Abraham, to look back to Sarah. So, for instance, uh, when the people of God... Uh, when they, they were going to be in, in Babylon, uh, they were given instructions to look to Abraham. So Isaiah uh, speaks uh, of uh, like this. He says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. So that was a time when it looked like God's promises had completely failed and the people of God were tempted just to remain there in Babylon. But they were instructed to look back to God's promise to Abraham and Sarah and just see that how long they took and how long they had to wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. And so that's an instruction for, for each one of us when the, the purposes of God seem to take a long time to unfold in our lives or in the lives of our families or extended families. We are instructed to look to Abraham and Sarah to consider all that they've been through when uh, your, your spiritual life or the life of the church, when there seems to be barrenness and difficulty, we are instructed to look to them uh, and to grow in, in perseverance and endurance. Well, we also see, I think, in the, these passages just how um, God is faithful to his covenant promises, but he does it in his own way and by his own power, by his own sovereign choice. We've seen, isn't it, it's not the Sarai's plan that prevails. It's not uh, Abraham's plan which prevailed. It's God's plan. He does it his own way. And we see that in the choice of Isaac um, over Ishmael. And this just shows us that it's God who is sovereign over his covenant and he will bring it about by his own power. And frequently, God's ways are surprising to us. They are surprising to the people of God. 
And this is the way that God loves to tell stories. God loves the long wait followed by the big surprise. He loves it. He loves the long wait followed by the big surprise. Just think of God's people uh, in Exodus. They've had that long, bitter wait for years, for generations in slavery in Egypt. Many generations suffering uh, great difficulty uh, when they must have wondered whether these promises were going to come to fruition. Uh, Those years when they had to look back to God's promises to to Abraham and Sarah and think, well, was God at work? Is he going to fulfill his promises? And they had to trust and wait. They had to go through the long wait. But then they had the big surprise at the end, those events of the Exodus as God raised up Moses to lead them out and the great events of the plagues as God just dismantled that nation and as he brought them up. And we even see it, this is how God works sort of at the the, the macrocosm, but even in the sort of the microcosm of some of the the mini actions in those dramas. So think of um, Israel there waiting at the banks of the, the Red Sea. Uh, it's the, the long wait with Pharaoh's army uh, behind them and they're, they're sort of the chariots glistening in the sun and bearing down upon them and they have this long wait where it seems like certain doom and that they're going to be uh, taken out by Pharaoh's army. But then, after the long wait, there's the big surprise that actually it's Pharaoh's army that are, are buried at the, the bottom of the Red Sea and taken away and God's people who go through on the dry ground, on the dry land, and then there's great expression of joy afterwards. So we see how God loves to tell stories, the long wait and the big surprise. And I think that the supreme example, of course, of this is the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. You have the long wait for God to send the Messiah, 400 years of silence, the people gathered there waiting for the Messiah. Think of the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Anna in the temple, she's been there until she's an old woman waiting for for God to send the Messiah. They had the long wait, and then when Christ finally comes, there is this big surprise that he he, he died on the cross, and they weren't expecting it. It was foreshadowed in, in various ways, but their eyes were, were closed to it. And, and then um, there's this, this long wait while uh, it looked like all God's promises had failed on that uh, Good Friday. The sky is black, and the enemies of Jesus had won, and darkness had won, it seemed, and the disciples were in despair. The tomb was sealed. Uh, the women were taking... Uh, the spices to anoint a dead body. And at this point, you think, hasn't God's storytelling just, isn't it gone a bit too far at this point? Um, But then there's the the resurrection of Jesus, which is this great surprise to them. Remember the reaction of the disciples this morning um, as they gathered around the risen Jesus. And it says, uh, while they, they didn't believe it for joy, it's much like um, Abraham's reaction to the announcement that, this, that his wife's going to have a baby. They, they didn't believe it. It could have been that they fell on their faces and laughed at what had happened in the resurrection. We see this great surprise that just as uh, God raised Isaac from a dead womb, so he raised Jesus from a sealed tomb and he raised him up. And it was this extraordinary surprise for them. And the response is just laughter and joy and it fills their mouths and all their fortunes are suddenly changed. And there are so many stories 
in the scriptures like this, when the Lord uh, restores the, the fortunes of Zion, then uh, our mouths are filled with joy, and, and the God's people couldn't believe what has happened. So that is how the Lord loves to tell stories. It's the long wait and the big surprise, and that, that works out in our own lives in microcosm. Very often we're, we're caught waiting for God and wondering how he's going to act, and is it going to be like this or like this, and we have to pray and wait and wait, and then he surprises us and works in ways that we were not expecting. And so, and, and we, like God's people, uh, wait ultimately for, for the return of Christ, and ultimately that will be, uh, there's a long wait, and there's this great surprise as God uh, returns, as Christ returns in glory and power and, and everlasting joy will crown our heads and sorrow and sighing will flee away. It'll be, uh, we may be expecting it, but it'll be this great surprise. And so we need to be ready for those things, ready for the long wait, ready to look to Abraham and Sarah, ready to trust in God and in his providential working through those hard times and bitter times. Uh, William um, Cooper famously says this, says, um, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So we have to be ready for that, for God's big surprise, and to trust him as he providentially works out his purposes in our own lives, in the lives of our families, and in the world. Well, God is faithful. He's God is faithful to his covenant promises. And uh, finally, we just see... Um, and perhaps in a way most obviously in the text here, God's covenant faithfulness is for us and for our children, for, for our offspring. And his covenant faithfulness just extends through the generations. That was what we, one of the things we looked at last time, um, back in verse 7, when God said, I'll be God to you and to your offspring throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God's covenant promises include our children, uh, include the children of the church. And this is not just found here, but throughout the Old Testament. So consider Deuteronomy 7, 9 to 10, just as a, one of many examples. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. God's covenant promises include our children. The promises, uh, I will be God to you and to your children after you. Well, what happens to those great promises when we come to the new covenant? Um, when finally the long-promised Messiah comes into the world, does God um, abandon all these promises? Well, no, his promises remains to be for, for you and for your children, as Peter says on the day of Pentecost. The new covenant is not the result of God abandoning his covenant with Abraham. It is the great fulfillment and expansion of that covenant. And the children are not forgotten in the new covenant. 
So it's not as if when we come to the New Covenant, God uh, just sort of finally works out that he was being a bit over-generous in the Old Covenant. Uh, he was, as it were, overspending, and he needs, now it comes to the New Covenant, to tighten his belt and to be a bit less generation. The promise used to be for a thousand generations, and now we're just going to take it uh, one at a time, please. We can't, we can't have all this promise to a thousand generation business anymore. It's not that. The promise of the new covenant includes uh, the children. Well, what happened to the promise of the land? Um, someone might say uh, the land of Canaan. Well, likewise, that has expanded in the new covenant to include the whole world. Remember Romans 4. 13, where Paul says, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come about through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So the promise of land gets expanded to be the promise of the whole world. And that is what God has promised to us. We are inheritors of these promises. He has promised us the cosmos, the world. He's promised that to us and to our, uh, to our offspring, those who are uh, in, in covenant with us. So these, these promises um, are made to, to Abraham and his children, to us and to our children. Now that does not mean that the children are automatically saved, uh, that you, if you are biologically descended from a Christian, as long as one parent or more is a Christian, that you automatically belong to God and are regenerate. It doesn't mean that. And it's the same in the, in the Old Covenant. Just being biologically descended from Abraham was never, was not enough. That was the mistake of the Jews in um, Jesus' day who boasted, we have Abraham as our father. They had biological descent. So there are plenty of examples of sons of Abraham who were duly circumcised, had the sign of the covenant, but did not grow up to inherit the promises like Ishmael or later like Esau. So it's not automatic, and fathers and parents in the Old Covenant were instructed to be diligent in teaching their children. So Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 9, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, this meaning the Ten Commandments, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, just as... Um, Fathers particularly singled out in the New Covenant. Uh, fathers, uh, raise up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Just as parents are instructed to raise up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in the New Covenant. And so it's not automatic. automatic. It takes a sovereign work of grace for anyone to come to faith. But nevertheless, God promises to be God to us and to our children. And that is meant to be a great encouragement for us um, as we look to the future, uh, whether that's uh, with your own family or whether that's simply as we look to God's purposes for his church, for his people uh, in modern Britain, that God will be God to us and to those coming generations. He works out those purposes through the generations. And so this gives us great confidence as we continue to trust in the Lord, as we wait for him, as we look for him to surprise us uh, with all the good things that he is planning uh, for us. And so we move forward in faith, trusting in the Lord to keep his promise. And let's pray. Uh, pray now that he would do that good work in us.
You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K. For more, thank you.